You're listening to our Voices series, where our church family is eager to hear from the hearts of local pastors in the Seattle area and the Greater Puget Sound as we work together toward gospel saturation. For more information, visit doxa-church.com. Uh, If you're with us for the first time, my name is Jeff. Uh, It's good to be with you. I'm one of the elders who gives some time to teaching here. Justin and I tend to share a lot of the teaching. But for these four weeks, we've been inviting outside voices from around the region to come speak. And we want to be a humble people who learn how to listen to other people. We also want to affirm that we're part of one big church in the Puget Sound. And uh, we want to honor other churches and other leaders, and we want to be blessed by them. So I want to invite Matthias up. Matthias is from Cross and Crown in the U District. Great church. Let's welcome him to our our family here this morning. And uh, we've actually been through a fellow journey of the last couple of years, seeing God rebuild some churches that we got to be a part of. And so uh, he's doing a wonderful job leading alongside of the elders in the U District. And uh, I would highly recommend that church to anybody that you know that's looking for a church, especially in that area. Um, we really are, we love what you do, man. We love what you guys are doing. And uh, our desire is to continue to reach out and say we're part of the same family. We're part of the same church. And so I want to ask you, how can we be praying for you, Matthias, as we think about what God's doing at Cross and Crown and what are the ways that we could as a family lift you up? Yeah. Man, thank you so much for having me. Thank yeah. you for uh, asking to pray for us. One thing that, that is deeply, deeply on our heart is to see men and women uh, confronted with the gospel of Jesus. And so while we pray for basically every elder meeting, every staff meeting, I think what's the cry of my heart daily is, God, would you give us the souls of men and women in the greater Seattle area? And so that's, that's our prayer And uh, we would love for you to pray for us. God's been gracious to us, as he has to you guys. It's been a a crazy two and a half years. I think we share some of the same stories, histories, uh, maybe uh, some hurts. uh, But God has been good, right? Is that true? Is that true for Doxa? Yes. Uh, I believe it is. So, like... Maybe I need to just, you know, speak into your lives. God has been good to Doxa, and I am so grateful for this church. But, yeah, pray. Pray that God would permit us to be a voice for Jesus, for his glory, and for his eternity in Seattle. Awesome. Let's do that. Father, so thankful for Matthias. Thank you for Cross and Crown. We're so grateful that we together can testify that you are the the God who redeems, who takes what can seem like uh, devastation or great disappointment and bring great hope and light and joy out of it. We pray, Lord, that you would do that through Matthias and through Cross and Crown for many, many souls in Seattle, that you would grant that many men and women would come to know how amazing you are, Jesus, that you would change their hearts, lead them to repentance, call them back to you, that you would allow them to see many, many, many souls saved and rescued from destruction, from despair, from being lost and far from you. Lord, we pray you would draw them near and you'd use their ministry and and their preaching and their life 
uh, the lives of their people, the lives of people in, in, in mission on every, in every day, that they would see that they are called to be the church all the time where you send them. So, Lord, we pray a blessing over them. Pray a, we pray a blessing over Matthias and the leaders. And right now, we invite you to speak to us through him. Would you empower him and lead him and fill him with your spirit so that what you have to say to us would get through today? So, Lord, give us hearts ready to receive. Give him humility and boldness to speak what he needs to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for, again, for having me. I am privileged to speak here today. Um, I am from Germany, so if you're trying to figure out what is this weird accent that, he, that he's got there, uh, I'd love to help you right up front so that way you don't sit there and miss everything that I say. He sounds weird. Is he from South Africa? He is not. Um, so... From Germany, born and raised, uh, my family is kind of a, a crazy amalgamation because on my mother's side, my great-grandmother uh, was a full-blown witch. On my father's side, my great-grandmother founded an inner-city mission. So I don't know. However, that works together. So I, from early, early on, childhood, my grandpa on my dad's side made it clear how significant and how important the Word of God is. And I'm passionate about the authority of the Word of God. And so when they said, hey, you can teach on anything you want to teach on, you can teach on anything you're passionate about, I decided, man, Word of God is where we're going to go today. Uh, so some of you are like, wait, Jeff just preached on that. He did, and he did an awesome job. If you did not listen to it, go to doxa-church.com. Listen to his message. It was phenomenal. But I listened to it. I don't think there's a ton of overlap. All right, let's uh, shoot in this. He here's what I'm hoping will happen today. I'm hoping that you will start seeing the Word of God with fresh eyes. Uh, not long ago, it's actually about well, a while back now, I heard a story, and it's a story about the FedEx logo. Can you see the FedEx logo right there? All right, so that, that logo right here, some of you have heard the story. For the rest of you, let me tell it. All right, uh, FedEx was a company that started back in the 70s, and they kind of were famous about sending items overnight. So much so, so that today, we actually use it as a verb, right? I'm going to FedEx that thing to you. Well, you, you might be using United States Postal Service overnight. You might be using UPS. But all of us say, oh, I'll FedEx that, right? And so the company, actually the name was Federal Express, they got a little nervous. They're like, man, that, that's not our name. We're not FedEx, However, Fred Smith, who was the CEO at the time in the early 90s, said, we've got to capitalize on this. This is absolutely incredible. We will commission a brand new logo, and we're going to be known as FedEx from now on. Uh, anyone on the way here saw a FedEx truck? I did. Anybody? Yeah. But they're everywhere. And so you see the logo, and you see it, and you see it, and you see it. Except for if you're like me, you don't actually see it. So Fred Smith commissioned this company to do a new logo. And it's been, if you're in design, you know this, it's won awards for years and years, every single year since the early 90s. It's been top eight designs. It's won over 40 just accolades and, and awards. And here's what happened. When, when he said, make me a design, they came up with 200 different designs. 200 which is crazy. Uh, 
And so after 200, there were five that they sold alike. So they printed them out on this beautiful poster board. They put it in the boardroom. And Fred Smith and his executive team looked at the designs. And immediately, Fred said, this is the one I want. This one with the arrow. The arrow. And everyone looks and is like trying to find an arrow on any of the designs. And there isn't an arrow on any of the designs. Or is there? Maybe we can see the logo again. In the negative space between the E and the X is this beautiful arrow. And this is actually the reason why this is such a well-known and well-awarded design. Now, let's be honest. I mean, I realize I'm German, so I'm not that smart. How many of you, like me, have never seen the arrow? All right, a ton of you. Thank you very much. I don't feel as dumb as I look, so this is good news, right? But here, here's what happens. Now, when I see a FedEx truck, what do I see? I only see the arrow. I don't see anything else. And so my hope is that as I learned some months back to see with fresh eyes, that we would see with fresh eyes. This is how David, King David, famous king of Israel in the Old Testament, speaks of the law of the Lord, speaks of the word of the Lord, speaks of the testimony of the Lord. It's amazing. I'm going to read it for us. It's going gonna, it's gonna to seem almost, if you just listen, as if he is verbally adoring, verbally caressing, verbally giving his worship to the word of God. Let me read it for us. He uses six different descriptors of the word, and then each of them has an adjective or an attribute of what it is. And each of the six does something for the hearer or reader. David says this, the law of the Lord, first word, right? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. So what he's saying is they're precious. The word of the Lord is precious. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. David loved the word of the Lord. He absolutely was enthralled with it. And I think we would do well to learn from him. At our church, one thing we've been doing for these last probably 12 to 18 months is we've been figuring out ways to read and to memorize and to meditate on the Word of God. See, my, my presupposition this morning is this, that our God is a personal God. And because He's a personal God, He personally communicates to us. He is not far off. He is not the God that set everything in motion and stepped away. 
He is the God near. He is the God involved. He is the God that loves us and reveals himself to us in his word, right? And and I believe that if there's a personal God who personally communicates, we do well to heed that. We do well to dig into that. So let's take a look at our text for this morning, 2 Timothy. This is Paul the Apostle preaching or, or writing a letter to Timothy, who was a young pastor, and he's encouraging him to preach even in the face of opposition. And so what he does here is he reminds Timothy of his background, of his youth, of his upbringing, and then reminds him of the inspiration, the truthfulness, and the authority of the Word of God. So let's take a look at it. He says, as for you, Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood. So this is, Timothy is a little bit like me. I know not all of us grew up in the church. Some of us grew up in the church. Some of us had believing parents or grandparents. And some of us, man, we we just kind of grew up the exact opposite way. And yet God reached us, right? He snatched us out of the muck and the mire of our lives, which, by the way, is true for those of us who grew up in Christian homes as well. Isn't that true? Right? He reached us. He saved us. He loves us. He redeems us. So he reminds Timothy of his past. He says, you grew up with the word. And from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All right, so we learn that Timothy has been in the Word, in the Scriptures, been reading the Scriptures, been exposed to the Scriptures, and in them, he found how to be saved, how to, through faith in Christ, be saved. And then here's what he does next. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. Breath. Every word we speak, every whisper, every bit of communication, it takes breath. And so what Paul is saying here is that the scriptures, that all the books of scripture, from the very beginning to the very end, 66 books, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, it is the words of God. He said all Scripture is breathed out by God. And, And what he does here, he hits something that theologically we would know as inspiration. So the content of the scripture is revelation, God's self revelation. But then the way that we know it is the Word of God is something called inspiration. Now, I I gave a definition from a theologian, Millard Erickson, and let me read it for us. Inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon the writers of Scripture which rendered their own writings an an accurate record of the revelation which resulted in what they wrote being the Word of God. Millard Erickson. So, What we have here, right, and Jeff mentioned it, that's why we stand. If Jesus walked in here, right, and he came up on stage, 
We might fall on our face. We, we might stand. We might lift our hands. We might cover our faces. But I don't think we would be seated. If Jesus walked in here and he spoke to us, we would give that incredible reverence. And so when we open the Bible, what is it? It's the very words of God. It is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit worked with the authors of Scripture to make sure that everything they wrote are the very words of God. Paul calls it that it's God-breathed. Peter says something different. Peter says, you need to understand that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the word carried along literally means to be picked up and to be carried somewhere, right? An object. What he is saying is the Spirit of God did the work of picking up and carrying the authors to where he decided they should go. He assured perfect accuracy. It is incredible, right? And so what we know then is the word of God in Scripture is inspired by him, and therefore it is trustworthy. The Bible, and Jeff did a great job going through that, has a phenomenal record. Jeff talked with you guys about manuscriptural evidence, right? How there's more manuscripts, literally tens of thousands of more manuscripts than the next best ancient manuscript. Homer's Iliad, tens of thousands of manuscripts less than the pages of Scripture that we have. Uh, anyone know Caesar? Remember Caesar, first emperor of Rome? He wrote something called De Bello Gallico. I had to translate it as a kid. Catholic school, what can I say? Right? And so uh, there's only eight manuscripts, but no one doubts that he wrote it and that it's an accurate record. Jeff talked to us about the historical accuracy, that historically all the things that Scripture affirms actually took place. Jeff talked to you guys about the archaeological evidence. And actually, there's digs going on right now. Am I nervous? Oh, they're digging. What if they find something that's going to contradict Scripture? No, I'm not nervous. Let them dig. Keep digging. It's going to affirm what we already know, that this is a trustworthy book because it is inspired by God, because the Holy Spirit made sure that actually it came to be as it is and who maintained it over the centuries, protected it, and who today illuminates it in our hearts as we read it and memorize it and meditate on it. That's the word of God. Jeff talked about the prophetic accuracy, just the prophecies in regards to Jesus coming. And then finally, he talked about the congruency of the message. No matter how many books, no matter how many authors, no matter how many years passed, 1,500 years from the first to the last book, wow, 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents, right? He hid all that. I, lo I love listening to his message. If you haven't heard it, would you go and listen to Jeff's message? 
If you heard it and you fell asleep and you, I never heard this, well, go home, listen to his message again. It is so good. Right? The word is trustworthy. The word is what we call inerrant. Now, inerrancy is this. It is that if the Bible is correctly interpreted and in view of the purpose for which it is given is fully truthful in all it affirms. See, the Bible says that it is the word of God. It says that thousands of times. We see it in every part of Scripture. We see it in the Pentateuch, 680 times. We see it in the historical writing, 418 times. We see it in the poetic works. It says it 195 times. And in the prophets, over 1,300 times. It is the word of God. It is the word of God. It is the word of God. 3,800 times it says, thus saith the Lord. Or the word of the Lord came. It's reliable. Now, here's what you do. Because you're smart. You went to college. I get it. Uh, and you're like, this German, what does he know? Right? Nothing good comes out of Germany. I mean, like the, the Reformation, I get it. That was cool. And ever since, it's been heresy. Totally true. Right? Late 1800s, early 1900s, Schleiermacher, uh, Bellhausen, etc. It's just, it's terrible. So you're like, how do we know? This sounds like circular reasoning, right? You're telling me that the Bible is the word of God and the Bible is trustworthy because the Bible says that it's the word of God. Okay, fair enough. Two points. One, is the accused in a court trial permitted to testify? Come on. Legal. Okay, now I realize there's maybe not many lawyers or law students, but you've all watched those courtroom dramas, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, the accused may testify on their own behalf. As a matter of fact, if there was no one else there, they may be the only ones that know the full story. And so they can testify on their own behalf. It is just that the rest of the evidence has to do what? Corroborate what their testimony is. So Jeff laid out how all the evidence corroborates the testimony of Scripture that it indeed is the inspired Word of God and the inerrant Word of God because of it. Because if God, who cannot lie, if God, who is 100% truthful, gives His Word to us, you would expect it to be inerrant and infallible. Inerrant, by the way, means that it is without error. Infallible is even stronger. It is, it cannot contain any error. How amazing is that? Now, so you, you, you say, okay, I guess that's fair. Second point, all arguments that, that try to prove an ultimate authority do what? By their very nature have to appeal to that ultimate authority, right? So if I say autonomous human reason is the ultimate authority, how do I prove that? In way of a circle, through my autonomous human reasoning. If I say, oh, science is the ultimate authority, how do I prove that? Science So all those arguments, whether it is for Scripture or for autonomous human reason or for science or for experience, all of it is proven in a circular 
manner. But see, the way we look at Scripture, not only is it an argument from Scripture, but it is proven, demonstrated, approved, if you will, by the evidence that we can observe through other means. The Word of God is inspired by God. The Word of God is inerrant. Now, now some of you are like, really? Inerrant? Don't you know? There's thousands of errors in Scripture. Well, I'd love to talk with you if that's what you believe, and maybe we can look at a couple of those. See, a lot of those things that are claimed to be errors are what we would call phenomenological language. People get really nervous. They're like, you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Don't you realize that the Bible says the earth is flat? Actually, it doesn't. Have you heard that the earth is flat, that the Bible says that? It's not true. It's nowhere in there. And then they say, oh, well, well, but it says the sun rises. We all know the sun doesn't rise. That's a primitive way of looking at things. Oh, oh really? And you are just stoked about the beautiful earth rotation you saw this morning? Really? Is that your attitude? It's like, man, this morning I got up. I got up early. I had my Bible. I had my cup of coffee. And I looked out the window. And oh, what a, oh this is an amazing earth rotation. No, you didn't say that. And if you said it here, if I said it from stage, you would not stone me because you'd be like, yeah, he is describing from the point of view of the observer what he is witnessing, right? Is that not true? We see the sunrise. That's what it seems to be. The Bible is not just true and trustworthy in matters of doctrine, in matters of salvation, in matters of theology, but it is truthful in all it affirms. We would believe in total inerrancy. And some of you will say, well, but isn't there things that are kind of not totally accurate? Fair enough. Uh, I live 10 miles from Doxa. Actually, that's not true. I live 9.9 something miles away from Doxa. This morning when I punched it into my ways, the app told me how far away I was. So am I lying if I say 10 miles instead of 9.9? No. I'm trying to communicate something. I live about 10 miles away, right? If you were to ask me, oh, you're reading this book, how many pages does it have? Oh, it has 400 pages. Well, really, it actually has 398 pages. But see, what does your brain do if I tell you it has 398 pages? It actually says, oh, it's around 300. That's not true. See, that's why at the store they charge you $3.99. No, it's $4. Right? You think, oh, $3 is fantastic. It's not. They con you. Is that I mean, too much information? I'm sorry, man. That's terrible. Okay, but in Scripture now, we have a lot of experiences like that. So in Second Chronicles, it talks about this big, massive thing. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a pool that was built. And the diameter was 10 cubits. And then it says in verse 4 that the circumference was 30 cubits. Where are my math majors? Any math majors? couple of you? All right. How, how do you get the circumference if you have the diameter? It's the diameter times pi. You guys are brilliant. All right. So it's the diameter times pi, which is 10 times 3.14159, and I don't know the rest. So, oh, 
which says that the circumference of this pool is 30 cubits. That's wrong. It's 31.4.159 something. No, right? We, we, we don't believe that it's trying to make a mathematical formula. We believe it's trying to tell you, hey, the diameter was 10 cubits. The circumference was about 30. The word of God is truthful, reliable, inerrant in all it affirms. Why? Because it's inspired by God. He spoke it into existence. It is breath from the mouth of God. It is his self-revelation. It is his love letter. It is his just pursuing you. That's what the word of God is. So if we then know that it is inspired and inerrant, we must conclude that the word of God is authoritative. Let me read you a definition from Dr. Wayne Grudem on authority. He writes, All the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Here's what we read in our text. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's beneficial for us, for teaching. We can learn. For Reproof, that is, no, that is the wrong way of doing things. For correction, all right, this is the right way of doing things. And for teaching or training in righteousness. The word of God has authority over our lives, has authority over our worldview. It has authority over how we walk and live and behave and interact It has authority over how we look at sex, how we look at money, how we look at family, how we look at child raising. The word of God is for us. It's for our benefit. It's for us to know the Father. It is to understand who we are. It is to understand the people around us. It is to give us a concept of meaning and purpose. It gives you hope for eternity. It gives you knowledge of salvation. It gives you the comfort of forgiveness. Right? That's the word of God. It's incredible. That's, that's what he writes. The authority then is so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The word man of God there means the messenger of God. Now obviously it is immediately applied to Timothy. But it also applies to us, doesn't it? When, he, when you look at the word and what it means, messenger of God, for those of us in the room who are Christ followers, right? Yeah, there's some of you here that checking it out. You're like, okay, I'm trying to figure out what is this Jesus thing about? What is this Bible thing about? What is this church thing? And then there's some of you in here that love Jesus and you follow Jesus. And see, each one of you is a messenger of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says this, that we are ambassadors of God, ambassadors for Christ, God himself making his appeal through us. That's you. 
The scriptures are given to you so that you might know God, so that you might pursue him, that you might know who you are, and that you might understand his purposes in the world for you and for every other human being. It is so that the messenger of God, that the ambassador for Christ might be competent and equipped for every good work. It's authoritative. We don't just ignore it. Now, in, in recent days, what's happened is it seems like there is a, a movement away from the authority of Scripture. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice, nice book, but it's an old book, and it's full of mistakes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting reading, but it's not authoritative. Here's some of the most recent things that, that we've heard, and that is that the Bible is historically inaccurate. Well, listen to Jeff's message. It's clearly not true. The Bible is legend, but it's written much too early to be legend. The Bible is a power grab, right? Those in authority, they just held on to it. Some years ago, uh, there was this, this big debate about the Da Vinci Code, right? Because like someone, Dan Brown, figured out that the Bible was just a power grab under Constantine. Really? Man, that didn't do a good job. Have you read what's in there? The only way you can say that the Bible is a power grab is if you've never read the Word of God. Who are the star witnesses to the resurrection? I just preached Mark. You guys heard it too. Who are the star witnesses? Women. In that age, they would not be allowed to testify. Oh, that's it. Okay, let's scratch that out. And then Peter and John witnessed the resurrection. Do you know that every single one of the gospels, when Jesus is risen, what's the response of the disciple? Shock and doubt. It just is beautiful. It means it's true. They recorded what actually happened. They would never write it, right? Oh, they knew that it was going to happen because Jesus told them in Mark three times. <laughs> it's incredible. Oh, it's a power grab. Yeah, okay, have you read how the disciples make buffoons out of themselves every other turn of the page? Come on, guys, it's not a power grab. The world says that it's culturally obsolete. It is socially regressive. It, it offends us culturally. But, but here's what's interesting. It offends us in different ways across the globe. It offends us in different ways from age to age. Let me give you two quick examples. All right, the United States and the Middle East today. The United States is offended by the biblical sexual ethic that is outlined in Scripture. Oh, so restrictive. It's terrible. The Muslims are on board with that, right? They're like, yeah, that's the way to do it. Now, we love Oh, love your enemies. It's just, oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, it makes me all warm and fuzzy inside. A Muslim would be offended by that. That's just today, 2017. The same scripture offending different cultures in different ways. Now, let's look at it in terms of history, right? Because everyone knows that 2017 is the pinnacle of all history. We have finally arrived. Hallelujah for that, right? Well, okay. I'm German, so let's pick on the Germans. 
The Germans of today were very secular people. 0.8% in the, the area of Frankfurt where I grew up are believers. 08 It's crazy. Um, but we were offended by the idea of judgment and angels coming from heaven. That is outrageously crazy to us. Now, the Germanic tribes of old would have loved that. They're like, oh, judgment and angels and the end of the world. And like, this is going to be great. Right? They would have believed it. Now, now, now here's the thing. We Germans, we love the idea that, oh, and then Peter was restored into Jesus' good graces. Because I don't know if you paid attention, but we Germans, we've done some crap. That's not, can I say that? I don't know if I can say that. Um, we've, we, we've, said some, we've done some things in history that we are terribly ashamed of. And the idea that there's forgiveness, that there's restoration, that there's newness of life, even after something as catastrophic as the Holocaust, oh, it fills us with joy. Not the Germanic tribes, the people that worshipped Odin and Thor, warriors. You betray me, I'll chop your head off. The, the fact that Peter was restored is unthinkable. So, same scripture, different places, different epochs in time, right? It is, it is crazy. Here's, here's what's happening in the world around us. This is a recent quote by a, let's, let's call him pastor in quotes. He said this, the church is moments away from affirming gay marriage. Culture is already there, and the church will continue to be more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. Are they really just letters from 2,000 years ago? Or is it the inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God? Right? Th this was a guy named Rob Bell on the Oprah Winfrey Show. A pastor more locally, I mean, like, let's bring it local, said, if I have to look at a 2,000-year-old book to tell me how to treat people, we've already lost. Are you kidding me? That's the only thing that's going to tell you how you should treat people. What are you going to base that on? It is unbelievable, right? In Seattle right now, we have 59 churches that are open and affirming. We have in my neighborhood, the U District, there's 12 churches. Two of us hold firm to biblical inerrancy. The other 10 have jettisoned that. I had lunch with a pastor not long ago whose church is affirming that the Holy Spirit is a she, despite the fact that Jesus in John chapter 14 actually uses a neuter noun and a masculine verb four times. John 14, look it up. Right? There's another pastor I just had lunch with. I love this man. But he and his board currently are contemplating to invite into membership same-sex married couples. And he says, well, for that, obviously, we will have to change our entire membership covenant because currently it affirms a biblical sexual ethic. It's crazy. That's what's happening. The, the dean of Asbury Seminary has abandoned the doctrine of the atonement. He said that the idea that Jesus would have to die in our place for our sin is a horrid doctrine and must be rejected. 
And as, as we keep looking and keep taking a look at our context, we see that there's something that seems new, but it's not new. It's intellectual autonomy. It's this idea that, oh no, we know best. And we know everything. If we trace this, we can trace it back to the Germans, actually, late 1800s, early 1900s. A guy named Schleiermacher started it all. And then a guy named Wellhausen continued, and ultimately it ended up with a man named Boltman. And that's all this idea of the Bible is not inerrant. The Bible is not the Word of God. It, at best, contains the Word of God. It's grievous. It's devastating. Here's, this is something I, I absolutely love. The church we got to buy the building uh, from was University Baptist Church. Today that church is, is apostate. But back when it started, 1850, 1898, and then into the early 1900s, it was a place of biblical truth. They, because of German scholarship, made this declaration. I want to read it to you. It's actually in the, the minutes of the church that we have taken over for, which is so exciting. It says this, Whereas the times now passing are full of doubts and questionings respecting Jesus Christ and who he is and respecting the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, whence and what they are, and many are now substituting for the ancient faith once for all delivered to the saints certain supposed results of modern so-called scholarship. This is, this is in 1908. Right? They're responding to the Germans. It's good stuff. Resolved, they go on, that this church cease not to stand and henceforth with new endeavor stand for Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man that with him as master this church stand simply and for all purposes as a body of disciples among sister churches of like standing bound to learn, to know, to teach, to submit to and to publish his views and his will and to say do and suffer those things which are agreeable to him. That from him as master, we as disciples have received and do hold the scriptures of the Old Testament and New Testament as a body of writings, holy inerrant, the very word of God of all and every part of which the Holy Spirit and holy men of his choice are co authors. It's incredible. These men and women knew what was at stake. And in the early 1900s, they took a stance for the inerrancy. We still struggle today. Prior to them, we had the Enlightenment, 1650 to 1800. Men like Descartes, men like Hume and Locke, right? Barclay. You know these guys. You had to read them in school. If we go further back in the Middle Ages, we see already changes toward that. But see, it started even before that. It started with the first Greek philosophers, 600 B.C., who said that human reason was autonomous 
And all things pertaining to the world and meaning can be discovered purely by our human intellect. Does that sound familiar? But see, it goes even further back. It goes back to the day that a serpent in a garden said to a man and a woman, did God really say? And the man and the woman decided that their understanding and their thinking and their process of thought was superior to the very words of God. And so what we have is a satanic plan from the very beginning of humankind leading astray men and women to thinking that their minds are superior to God, that their reason and their understanding and their logic is superior to the very words of love spoken by a God who sent his son and would not spare him to die on a Roman cross. Friends, you may ask, why does it even matter, right? You're tracing 1800, 1600, 600 BC. I don't care. You mentioned weird names, never heard of. Why does it matter? John Frame is a theologian, and he says this. If God has not spoken to us personally, then Everything important in Christianity is human speculation and fantasy. Listen, guys, these theologians, these pastors, these people, they don't want to get rid of the dignity of humanity. They don't want to get rid of forgiveness. They don't want to get rid of for, like, uh, the redemption we have in Christ Jesus in many cases. In some cases they do, right? But in many cases they don't want to get rid of those. But if you deny that this is the word of God, it is inspired and inerrant and authoritative, you have nothing. And the things that are so precious to us, the dignity of men and women made in the image of God. But why, why is racism so abhorrent? Because it goes against the imago Dei, the created order. Is that not true? Why, why is it that, that it is so important that we have the scriptures? It is because meaning in life, meaning in romance, meaning in work is removed if there is no eternal God. If you're like me, you struggle with, with life. You struggle with sin. You struggle with shame. You struggle with finding purpose and meaning. And as you search for it, you cannot find it if there is no personal, eternal God who has spoken to you personally, individually, who has spoken to us as a church collectively, and who has revealed that you are precious in his sight, that you are loved in the eyes of God, that he sent the Son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place and for your sins. If we do away with the Scriptures, 
all that is gone. And, and what's going to happen is this. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myth. That's what we see today. And, and my prayer for Cross and Crown, the church I pastor, 9.916 miles away, and for Doxa, the church that you are all in today, is that we would hold firm to the truth of the Word of God. And we would permit it to be in authority over us. Because it will not just inform our view on finances and our view on family and our view on politics and our view on the sexual ethics of our world. It will also inform us that we're redeemed and loved and forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And that doxa is good news. Amen? Amen. If you... If you would permit me, I want to pray in that vein for this church. Father God, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the pastors and leaders, the elders that, that care for the flock so well. Father, thank you that they stand firm. Thank you that they hold tight. Thank you that they are pursuing Jesus with passionate hearts. I pray, God, would you... Give us new eyes to see your word. I pray, God, would you permit us to dive deeply into knowing you through your word. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.